There was definitely ancient ruins in Mexico City in my mission. Um, there is pyramids of Teotihuacan, and it was very, very cool experience to go there and see the pyramids. And just when I looked at it, I just all I could think was Book of Mormon every time I saw it. I mean, you had the Sun Pyramid, the Moon Pyramid, and then didn't really say anything about the stars, but say, I mean, it, it was something, it was there. No, it wasn't. Come on, be nice. And then when you went to the the Quetzalcoatl Pyramid, there was um, the Quetzalcoatl Pyramid in the middle, and there was like this kind of like amphitheater, and then raised up, there was. 12, or yeah, 12 little pyramids around the side, and on the back there's three. And I thought that was kind of interesting how that was set up, and I just, I just saw Book of Mormon all over that, and it was really neat to see that, and um, that there was ancient people there, and the Book of Mormon does testify of that, and I just, it is really, yeah, it was so neat to see that. I, I'd recommend it to anyone that goes there and to go see that on a P-Day. <laughs> or if you're just going to Mexico City, just to go see that. Because it's amazing to see this, these pyramids. So, Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I'm in Mexico right now, so I'm just going to head on out there. Why don't you come on? <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 682 Truth or Fiction, Part 1, Book of Mormon Evidence on Trial. What is truth? What is fiction? Eight years ago, I started this podcast with Bob Caswell, Matt Long, Tom Perry, Scott Rowley, and Randy Snyder. That was the original quorum. We eventually added Jake Frost, John Hamer, and Heather Craw. And we called ourselves Infants on Thrones. That was Tom's idea, and we all loved it. Yes, it came from the King Follett discourse, but what it really meant was that we recognized that we were all infants. We all still had a lot to learn. We didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. We didn't want to be just another ex-Mormon podcast. We wanted to explore a lot of different things. And so we did, in a lot of different ways. Welcome. I'm going to be your ex-Mormon meditation you should be cautious about relying on information or advice offered by entertainment stars, prominent athletes, or Again, none of which are me. And read the letters between Lowry Nelson and some leaders of the church. There is a doctrinal requirement that they actually take a vote and allow their members to dissent. Though supposed, if any, may manifest it. Go for it, man. So I'll repeat myself at the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave the church. That was then. This is now. 
Of course, it won't be too long before now is also then once again, but I just wrote and self-published a book called Bathing with God. In many ways, it represents a lot of what this podcast has been about over the past eight years, at least what it's been about for me. Because this podcast has not really been just about ridiculing and smacking down all of the silly things about our former Mormon faith. It has been an attempt to figure out what is truth versus what is fiction. It's been a kind of microcosm for life that way, hasn't it? Oh, hey there, Quad. Hey, everybody, this is Quad. They know. Quad is the imaginary voice of... Well, an imaginary voice that may or may not be God that I created for the book Bathing with God. They know that too. Quad was born on Infants on Thrones. So Quad is going to help me out with this new multi-part series where we dive back into a lot of the old classic episodes of Infants on Thrones and reframe them with my current view of the world. Look for the good in everything. Are you going to tell them what that current view is? Well, it's sort of like you said, leaving the Mormon church, spending all the time that we spent asking what is truth versus what is fiction, it's kind of like a microcosm for life. And it's something that we could look at with a lot of regret, a lot of shame, a lot of anger, a lot of pride. But my new view on life is to look for the good, to try to find the gratitude, even in these fictions that we used to believe were truths. And I like to think that there were certain skills that I developed by doing this podcast, Infants on Thrones, that helped me unpack this question, what is truth, what is fiction, outside of Mormonism, in the real, everyday world. I like to think of your experience as training wheels for the really big stuff. Oh yeah? And what do you consider to be the really big stuff? Well, you grew up with certain key assumptions about truth, about the nature of reality. And you are going to discuss a lot of those on today's episode. But you had what lots of people consider to be a faith crisis when you realized that most of those key assumptions were, dare I say, fictions. And now I have challenged you to look at the rest of life in a similar way, full of assumptions you make about what you think are rock-solid truths, but are themselves just as fictional as the Book of Mormon evidence that will be discussed in today's episode. Right, so let's get to it then. Can I say a few more things about it at the end? Sure, but for now, let's jump right in. So I recorded this episode in early 2014 from a hotel room in Mexico City. It was originally titled Episode 55, Teotihuacan, Reflections on Myopia and Cultural Imperialism. And it's a good example of the way that I was deconstructing some of my core Mormon fictions. And an even better example of how you were being understandably myopic and culturally imperialistic yourself, projecting the way that you see the world onto something that appeared to be a separate thing and then ridiculing that thing without understanding that the thing that you were ridiculing was really yourself. Yeah, I think I mentioned something like that towards the end. Sure, you were beginning to see things that way even back then, but admit it, you were a little heavy-handed in this approach. Yes, yes, yes I was. Channeling your inner Bill Maher. Yeah, maybe a little. Replacing one fiction for another. True. But you're right, let's just jump into it, and we'll say more about it at the end. Because this one 
was a whole lot of fun. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and the sounds you're hearing right now in the background are the vendors at the base of the Temple of the Sun in Teotihuacan. And I recorded this myself because I came to Mexico City for business and I had some time to go and visit the pyramids. And I got to climb up to the Temple of the Sun and walk down the Avenue of the Dead and stand in the courtyard at the base of the Temple of the Moon. And you know what? Just like this random missionary kid that I found on YouTube, I also couldn't help but think Book of Mormon everywhere I looked. Except for me, it was probably a little different. But, you know, for me, growing up, seeing all these pictures of Jesus coming down and walking among the Nephites, you know, I'd seen all these Mesoamerican temples and ruins and architecture. And and then here I was, standing in the courtyard that, as far as I could tell, was the very inspiration for some of those Book of Mormon pictures. And it just seemed so stupid. Oh, no, no, no. Now, on this trip, I've been reading Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet by John Turner. I'm only about 100 pages into it, but it's put my mind back into early Mormon church mode. You know, it was such a different experience for those guys, and the world was such a different place, too. Now, I was really interested as I read uh, the sections about Zion's camp. You know, the way these guys trekked from Ohio to Missouri and... You know, they came across all these Native American mounds, and Joseph Smith would take opportunity to play ancient American tour guide and tell all these guys detailed stories about the mounds and how they tied back to the Nephites, which was further evidence of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, which was further evidence of his own divine calling. Nothing self-serving there. And a pretty important tactic, I think, to pull out when you're trying to convince these guys to just keep on marching. So... We have this one really good example of what some of these tour guide stories must have been like. Because at one point, they found a dried skeleton with an arrow through it. And Joseph Smith told them that this was Zelf, a white Lamanite warrior who lived under the reign of the prophet Onondagas and fought alongside Onondagas for the cause of freedom. Yay! And Brigham Young was so impressed that he took the arrow from the bones and he kept it as a souvenir. I didn't know that. And it was a reminder to him throughout his life of the truthfulness of Joseph Smith. And then there was this time a few years after Zion's march when they found this stone pillar that looked like an altar. And Joseph told everyone that it had been built by Adam himself. You know, amazing that those rocks would stay on top of each other for so long, especially withstanding all the water damage that they must have sustained in the flood. And Joseph named this place Adam on Diamond. And he said that it was where Adam and Eve lived after they had been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because Joseph Smith was kind of like that Paul Harvey guy on AM radio that my dad used to listen to. You know, the one that always ended his shows with, now and now you, you know, know the, the rest, rest of the of story. The story. Yeah, Joseph Smith loved giving people this inside rest of the story crap about the Bible and Book of Mormon stories. And those people just ate it up. And many of my own ancestors just ate it up. You know, sometimes I wonder what was wrong with them. And then I wonder what's wrong with me for wondering what was wrong with them. So as I walked through these very impressive structures at Teotihuacan, I imagined what it would have been like if I was walking there with Joseph Smith as my tour guide. And this sort of Cliff Clavin type voice popped into my head. Isn't that a quirk in the... Uh 
Clavin family that we all have two extra teeth. It, you see, that's the only way that we can prove that we are the rightful heirs to the Russian throne. Hello in there, Cliff. <laughs> Tell me, what color is the sky in your world? And it was saying these things like, yeah, this is the Temple of the Sun, uh, where the black Nephite Sambo Wamboha stood to warn all the people of the city of the impending Kirilam attack. Yeah, that's it. And uh, you see that mural over there, the Jaguar? Well, yeah, people think that it was Jaguars, but back then it was really uh, Kirilams. Uh, yeah, Kirilams were hunted and completely wiped out, and their skins were traded for precious ores. Yeah, shiny precious ores, kind of like the ones those vendors are selling right over there. Yeah, that's the ticket. Because, you know what I think really happened? I think that Joseph Smith knew about these pyramids in Central America. I mean, of course he knew about these pyramids in Central America. And he knew they were these amazingly mysterious structures that, you know, most people just associated with Egyptian and Egyptian pyramids. So, Egyptian pyramids and Central American pyramids, there must be some old world connection to the new world, so... Let's tell the rest of the story. And let's tell about how they got there. You know, people will like that, right? So, okay, yeah. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents and all that, do now make a record in the language of my fathers, which consists of the learning of the Jews, because we need that to connect these people to the Bible and all those cool stories, right? And, of course, the language of the Egyptians, you know, because of that whole old world pyramid connection thing. And, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got all these ancient Indian mounds up here, you know, the ones that I've been taking people to for years as we look for gold and stuff. So what if the same group that started in the old world came to the new world and built the pyramids and then they moved up into the northern parts of America and also built these big mounds right up here? I mean, over time, of course. And then... And then they left a written history on golden plates right here where I can find them and tell the whole rest of the story. story. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So before I visited the pyramids here in Mexico, I sent an email to the other guys just kind of jokingly saying, hey, I'm going to Zarahemla, wish me luck. And Tom sent me a link to this guy named Ryan Fisher. Is uh, some kind of Nephite explorer. I don't know. I guess he calls himself the Indiana Jones of Book of Mormon geography or something. My name is Ryan Fisher. I'm an investigative journalist and explorer, and I'm applying the tools of my trade to all things Nephite. I'm launching into a series of investigations into Nephite archaeology, scriptural history, and prophecies about Latter-day America. This is Nephite Explorer. Now, there was a time in my life where I thought that maybe I could do something like this. You know, I was studying cultural anthropology, folklore, and I was focusing on Mormon culture, and I thought that maybe someday... I'd be able to teach at BYU and get to apply my own tools of the trade to all things Mormon, which would include some modern-day nibbly stuff, you know, making connections between modern beliefs and ancient traditions that would validate the beliefs and show us all how right we are, as if we didn't already know that already, right? But it doesn't really work like that. At least, it didn't for me. The Book of Mormon is a volume of scripture that, among other teachings of Jesus Christ, contains many prophecies about the promised land of the Nephites. 
Prophecies that are directed to the people that will one day live on that same promised land that the Nephites were destroyed on. These are prophecies not to be taken lightly. They are warnings of great natural disasters, wars, maintaining freedom, and more. Taking into consideration the great responsibility of the people and government of that promised land, I want to know exactly where is the promised land in these latter days. Do these prophecies apply to the United States, Canada, Mexico? Is it North America? Is it- See, I couldn't get away with stuff like this in grad school. I couldn't just say the Book of Mormon is scripture and contains the teachings of Jesus Christ. I wanted to. I believed it. But I couldn't just put it out there like that without giving any evidence that it really was what I thought it was. And it would have to be evidence that an outsider would accept or at least consider valid. So, you know, Ryan's approach here is that the Book of Mormon says some pretty important things about the future inhabitants of this land. So we better be really clear about where this land actually is. My interest would have been whether or not the things in this land could truly provide valid evidence of the Book of Mormon. So my approach would be to validate the Book of Mormon first, and Ryan's just taking this as a given. But I would want to know what a non-Mormon specialist would say about archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. You know, a guy like Yale professor Michael Coe. Nobody ever used iron in the New World. Nobody has ever found pre-Columbian coinage, ever. If there were coins, there'd be chocolate beans. Why aren't chocolate beans mentioned in the uh, Book of Mormon? Copper alloys like brass in any form doesn't show up in Mesoamerica until at the earliest, 800 A.D. Gold doesn't show up in any way until seven or 800 A.D. You've got crops mentioned in the Book of Mormon that never existed in pre-Columbian America. All of these things would have produced pollen. If they'd been grown by anybody, a lot of this stuff is windblown. It would fall onto ponds and lakes and get enclosed in sediments. Tremendous amounts of pollen work has been done uh, in this area, in Mesoamerica. We find ancient pollen, and there's none of this stuff that's in the Book of Mormon. Silk, nothing. The seven-day calendar was unknown. They never had chariots. They had helmets, all right, but they weren't made out of brass, that's for sure. There's no evidence for horses, no evidence whatsoever for any kind of cattle. Pig, zero. Not one pig bone has ever shown up. Elephants, uh, there's nothing. I've never seen anything there that would convince me that these people have Middle Eastern DNA. We can read 95% of what the Maya themselves wrote. It's in Maya. It's not in Aramaic. It's, it's not Semitic. There are no Semitic words whatsoever in it. It's got no relation whatsoever with any languages that we know of in the Old World. Basically, if you're looking for Old World connections and looking at the Near East, you're looking in the wrong place. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty discouraging. So maybe the Book of Mormon isn't exactly what it claims to be. I mean, now, if I'm a grad student and I'm really serious about trying to learn how to use these tools of the trade, I need to actually be open to what the evidence is telling me, right? I guess I also need to be open to hearing other explanations. So, all right, let's go back to Ryan. What does Ryan have to say about this land? Because, you know, Coe is talking about Mesoamerica as being this land, but maybe Joseph Smith had some other land in mind. In my quest to better understand the events of the Book of Mormon and where they took place, I'm going back in church history find out more about the man that knew the Nephites the most, Joseph Smith. Right, because he made up the Nephites. Okay, I'll, I'll shut up. On June 4th, 1834, in his own handwriting, he wrote, We arrived this morning on the banks of the Mississippi River. We left the eastern part of Ohio. The whole of our journey in the midst of so large a company of social, honest, and sincere men. Wandering over the plains of the Nephites, 
recounting occasionally the history of the Book of Mormon, roving over the mounds of that once beloved people of the Lord, picking up their skulls and bones as proof of his divine authenticity. He's talking about Zelf, by the way. This letter is in the possession of the RLDS Church here in Nauvoo, now known as the Community of Christ. And that is why it's not known to many scholars. But in it, Joseph Smith tells his wife, Emma, about roving over the plains of the Nephites with astounding detail. So clearly Joseph believed that the people who built the mound that he was around were the Nephite people. That, that's obvious to everyone, right? We know from modern archaeology that there is a culture here in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys called the Hopewell. They're also known as the Mound Builders. What mounds was Joseph Smith talking about? This letter was written during Zion's Camp March, which started in Kirkland, Ohio, May 4, 1834, and concluded on the banks of the Mississippi River a month later. Somewhere along this route, Joseph Smith and company encountered the mounds and remains of what he called proof of the Book of Mormon's divine authenticity. I'm setting off to try and find those mounds and gather any archaeological evidence that would support Joseph Smith's claims. Now, that would be really cool, right? You know, evidence to support Joseph Smith's claims. I would actually really like that. But let's not forget, Joseph Smith knew about these mounds long before the Book of Mormon was published. So if he actually was the author of the Book of Mormon and he was trying to tell the rest of the story about the origin of these mounds, then the evidence that we find better be pretty solid. Because if it's just something lame like, and in the Book of Alma we have an account of Helaman throwing up mounds of dirt for fortification, and look, here's mounds of dirt, just like the Book of Mormon said there would be. Yeah, if it's something lame like that, then it isn't really evidence. Okay, I'm in Newark, Ohio, and there are just absolutely massive earthworks here. Circles, octagons, just everything on a scale that I had no idea existed. I mean, look at this. Okay, yeah, impressive earth mounds, absolutely. But all these shapes prove what? That the people who built them were creative? Okay, lots of ancient people built lots of amazing things pretty much everywhere around the world. So where exactly is the Book of Mormon tie? I'm standing on this wall right now that is about 25 feet high. It's a massive ditch. It must have taken just absolutely massive amounts of man hours, manpower to build this structure. Wow, that sounds uh, massive. But... Okay, so how does this have to do with the Book of Mormon? Meeting me here is Wayne May, publisher of Ancient American Magazine and Mormon Convert. Wayne has amassed volumes of research and understanding on the Hopewell people, who have many direct parallels to the Nephite nation. Ooh, many. I like that word. Here we are, this uh, very blustery uh, fall day. This is the Great Circle in Ohio. <coughs> which is part of the Newark Earthworks. The Newark Earthworks totally comprises about a four and a half uh, area of miles in circumference. But this was built by, uh, as far as we know, the Hopewell people, uh, 300 B.C. to 400 A.D. And it's a magnificent structure. It makes it unusual because the ditch is on the inside. And so rather than be a fortification like so many of them are, we really believe this one had definitely ceremonial or a sacred purpose. Why? I mean, like a ditch on the inside of the wall has a religious or ceremonial purpose. Okay, because of like the, the law of Moses that 
tells you to have a ditch inside the wall or like I, well, what's the religious significance of a ditch inside the wall? I, I hope we go into this. Let's take a walk up here on top of the berm so you can see how high these things are. As you can begin to see here and appreciate the depth of this place and the, the largeness of it is absolutely huge. He's not going to say anything about the religious stuff and make a connection, is he? He's just impressed by how big it is still. This circle runs approximately 154 feet all the way across in the center for the diameter. The circle itself uh, is almost a true circle within about a, a foot and a half of 18 inches of difference. Otherwise, it is very, very perfect. And uh, again, it's just so huge. You can't hardly appreciate how big it is. The only way to really see this is to take it from the air, from an airplane, and look down upon this and see the magnificence, how big this is. Oh, oh, please, please stop. If the massive sheer scale of this earthworks aren't impressive enough... Well, they are, but it doesn't tie anything to the Nephites. I mean, come on, get to it. Get this, they all have astronomical alignments. Equinox, winter solstice, summer solstice, moonrise, sunset. I mean, all this stuff is planned out into the lines that make this earth work. Yeah, right. So is Stonehenge. I mean, like, that's what ancient people did. They they lived by the seasons. They planted crops at a certain time. They harvested them at a certain time. They needed to know what all this stuff was. But, like... This is a Book of Mormon connection? I don't know. I, I don't know. What, what, what are you saying to me? I mean, we're talking about astronomy and math that's way beyond me. Oh, please, please just get to all of these many, many parallels. Please, please do it. Please, please. What context are we talking about here in relationship to the, the, account, of the account of the Lehites and their people? Thank you. Thank you. And nicely said. The Hopewell Earthworks represents, as you can see, if you read in the Book of Alma, starting at 72 BC, when Moroni decided he would fortify all the lands and all the earth, he said he would throw up great banks of earth and dig deep ditches. And this is representative of these great banks of earth and deep ditches. And these are representative of the fortifications in the Promised Land, which has a nice parallel and match here in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Okay, to be fair, I knew this was coming. But seriously, lame, 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 lame. I can imagine this being quite effective at repelling a Lamanite attack. For students of the Book of Mormon, just try to imagine that the enemy here is out in the flat plain. Okay, I'm going to stop it right here because they both just said imagine twice in a row. And yeah... That's exactly what I think this is. The figment of someone's very impressive imagination. You know, I can't figure out how to really think about all this stuff. You know, I'm sort of torn by two different ideas. So I guess you'll know where I land by the title I eventually give this episode. But on the one hand, this is an extreme case of myopia. A limited or restricted vision. Now, you can see the immense accomplishments of the people who built the mounds, who built the Mexican pyramids, but you can't see past your own predetermined conclusions. It's an epidemic, really, and I suffered from this myopic way of viewing the world as much as anyone ever did. But once I realized what I was doing, I just couldn't sustain it. I guess this leads me to my second point here, because this is such a terrible case of cultural imperialism. 
Cultural imperialism. Now, when you're so myopic that you can only see these amazing ancient cultures as a validation of your own religious beliefs and biases, then you're essentially robbing these people of their own essence, their own accomplishments, and their own identity. Now, I actually came to really hate this about the church, and especially about my mission. I spent two years in Japan, where I could have been really learning and absorbing the Japanese culture. I could have been appreciating it for what it is and learning what it has to teach me. Instead, I was a cultural imperialist. I only pretended to care about Japanese culture in those areas where I could force parallels to Mormonism, only in those areas where I could build on common beliefs and get them to where I wanted them to go. And in Japan, for a lot of us missionaries and members alike, that meant reinterpreting Japanese history to fit this restoration model, to view the Japanese as the lost tribes of Israel, to rob them of their own tradition and their own heritage and impose another culture on them and claim that it was their original culture all along, now newly restored. Something incredible, I'll do something incredible. The missionaries can be so presumptuous. I want to be the Mormon who changed all of mankind. And so woefully naive and well-meaningly arrogant. I'll do something incredible that blows God's freaking mind. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the missionaries came to my door as I was recording the Untestimony minisode. What I didn't tell you was that they handed me some reading material. It was something that, as a folklorist, I recognized right away as Xerox lore. Now, we had a version of this in my mission. It was a first discussion written by some anonymous Japanese missionary who explained all the parallels between the Japanese people and the lost tribes of Israel. It had been Xeroxed over and over and passed from missionary to missionary to the point where it was fading. The ink was fading in spots. And that's exactly what I saw when I looked at this letter that the missionaries handed me. Now, this is supposedly a talk given by a guy who was a lawyer, presumably sometime in the 50s or the 60s, because he mentions the church being two million strong and that David O. McKay was a prophet at the time. But he claims to explain why the church is true from the point of pure logic. And the missionaries gave this to me because they apparently loved it and thought that it would show me the error of my ways in an academic way that a guy like me could really appreciate. Now, remember naive and well-meaningly arrogant because this letter is full of the same myopic cultural imperialist pseudo-proof that we see everywhere supporting the truth claims of the church want to hear it well too bad because i'm sharing it with you anyways why i am a mormon by douglas bryan now, like I said, this Douglas Bryan guy, I don't really know who he is. I Googled him. I didn't find anything. I think maybe it's because it was the 50s or the 60s. But uh, the only reference that I did find to this essay was on a missionary's homepage, some kid that had served in Brazil, maybe 2007, 2008. So, you know... I got it in Indiana. Somebody's using it in Brazil. It's been around since the 50s or 60s. It's a pretty good example of the Xerox lore thing. So anyway, Douglas Bryan, lawyer. All right, what do you got to say? 
I would like to tell you why I am a Mormon from the standpoint of pure logic. Wow, pure logic. Okay, as opposed to other kinds of logic. So I guess logic is the use of valid reasoning, and reasoning is the process of establishing and verifying facts to support your claims. And pure means that it's not mixed in with anything else. So the claim right off the bat is that we are about to see a valid reasoning that's not mixed with anything other than verifiable facts. Let's see how we do. I realize that it takes prayer and faith and many things to get us into the church and keep us there, but my faith can be much stronger if it's backed up by some good, sound logic. To begin with, I am a Christian. I believe in the mission of Christ. I believe the story of Christ in all its details as told in the Bible. But I can't prove it. So far as I've been able to learn, the regular historians who wrote in the actual day in which Christ lived didn't mention his name. There are those who challenge this and cite the writings of Josephus, but Josephus didn't live in the time of Christ. He was born several years after Christ was crucified. So, if I lay aside Christian writings and Christian theology, I can't really prove that he was ever born. Wow. You know, my dad was a lawyer, is a lawyer, and uh, this reminds me so much of conversations with him. I don't really know what to say. Okay, so, all right, you can't prove that Christ was born? I'll give you that. No problem there. I have here a copy of the Book of Mormon. If I can prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet, if I can prove that he received the way he said he received it, if I can prove that this book is true, then I will not only prove that we have the true gospel, but I will prove the story of Christ, because this book contains the story of Christ. Yeah, you know, I can see why this would be appealing to the missionaries, because if you can prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet, or prove that the Book of Mormon is true, then you can prove the uh, divinity of Jesus Christ and everything that says about it. Uh, Yeah, I can get that. So, is that what we're trying to do here? We're trying to set out to prove that Joseph Smith is a prophet and prove that the Book of Mormon is true? All right, I'm going to open up my mind. Uh, Give me the proof. Let's evaluate it. At the time Joseph Smith brought forth the Book of Mormon, he was just 23 years old. In order to get the true picture, try to think of some young man you know who was 23 years old. Whoa, wait, 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 wait a second. Um, I thought this was going to be pure logic. Um, This doesn't seem like pure logic to me. You know, we're making a comparison to a 23-year-old in the 1950s or 60s uh, compared to Joseph Smith as a 23-year-old. I mean... Okay, mind open, mind open, mind open, mind open. He has been to school just three years. Try to think of some lad who has been to school just three years. Now, when a man writes a book of this type, he usually travels thousands of miles and spends years in research before he attempts it. Really? A book of this type? Thousands of miles? You've already lost me, Brother Brian. The man who wrote the robe spent 10 years in research before starting, and it didn't even need to be true. It just had to sound like it was true. 
Okay, uh, a quick Google check shows that The Robe is a fictional story that was published in 1942 about a Roman tribune uh, and his Greek slave who were involved in the crucifixion of Christ. It was written by a man named Lloyd Douglas, an American minister born in Columbia City, Indiana, and he got the idea for The Robe from a fan named Hazel McCann, who wrote a letter asking Douglas what he thought happened to Christ's garments after the crucifixion. Now, I didn't find anything in that article about 10 years of research or even traveling thousands of miles to write it. He wrote 10 novels from 1929 until his death in 1951, and The Robe was the ninth of these 10. So The Robe is really just some weird red herring that he's throwing out here. Um, It's being used as a benchmark to measure by comparison how impressive the Book of Mormon is, but seriously... Pure logic? This is pretty sloppy stuff. Joseph Smith didn't travel anywhere except around his neighborhood with a horse and buggy. Really? So you don't count the time that he spent in Salem when he was a little kid after that whole leg surgery thing? Or the time that he spent uh, in different parts of New York and Pennsylvania as a treasure seeker? When he was taking people on expeditions of hidden treasure and gold Indian Spanish buried mine stuff. It just was around his neighborhood with a horse and buggy. Uh, Brother Brian. He didn't do any research at all. In the first place, he wouldn't have known how. In the second place, he had no books. In his day, there were no books containing this material. Oh, come on. Now you're just speaking from ignorance. You know, Ethan Smith had that book, A View of the Hebrews, which had some pretty similar comment. And then there was that whole, uh, what's it called, the late war between the United States and Great Britain that was written in 18... 16 by Gilbert J. Hunt. I mean, that reads very similar to the Book of Mormon, but I don't know. I guess you didn't know that in 1950s or 1960s, or maybe you just didn't want to know it. When a man writes a large book like this, he has hundreds and sometimes thousands of little revisions. A word deleted here and a phrase or sentence changed there, etc., Sometimes the entire book must be rewritten several times before it's ready for publication. Joseph Smith couldn't do that. His first draft had to stand. He couldn't change one single word once it was written down. And yet the language is quite perfect. Yeah, remember when he started saying that he was going to give pure logic, which was verifiable facts? Uh, These aren't facts. I mean, you can verify this, and you can see that there have been hundreds of changes to the Book of Mormon, even if they're small changes. But there have been changes to the Book of Mormon since Joseph Smith wrote it. So uh, this is completely off base. You will find no discrepancy between names and dates and places. Well, you won't find them anymore because they've already been changed. But there was a point where King Benjamin was actually changed to King Mosiah in a spot because Benjamin had already been previously killed off at that point in the text. So they had to go back and change it. But, you know, come on. Let's get this right. Joseph Smith didn't write any of the Book of Mormon. He dictated it to scribes, mainly to Oliver Cowdery. So Joseph Smith would speak, and Oliver would write, and then he'd read it back, and they'd go over and they'd review what had been written down, and they would self-correct as they went. So, yes, it's still an impressive accomplishment, and one that would require a certain level of genius to pull off, but 
Come on, Joseph can't be held to this impossible standard of not being able to change one single word once it was written down. That's just verifiably false. Famous attorneys have declared that in this respect, the whole book is as perfect as the finest legal document. Any author will tell you that for even the greatest scholar to write such a thing in one draft would be absolutely and utterly impossible. Any author, huh? Okay, so can I pick Mark Twain? Because he lived at the same time of Joseph Smith, roughly, and he read the Book of Mormon and he actually commented on it. So let's take a look at some of the things that Mark Twain said. And this comes from Roughing It, a personal narrative. All men have heard of the Mormon Bible, but few except the elect have seen it or at least taken the trouble to read it. I brought away a copy from Salt Lake. The book is a curiosity to me. It is such a pretentious affair, and yet so slow, so sleepy, such an insipid mess of inspiration. It is chloroform in print. If Joseph Smith composed this book, the act was a miracle. Keeping awake while he did it was, at any rate. If he, according to tradition, merely translated it from certain ancient and mysteriously engraved plates of copper, which he declares he found under a stone in an out-of-the-way locality, the work of translating was equally a miracle for the same reason. The book seems to be merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model, followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. The author labored to give his words and phrases the quaint, old-fashioned sound and structure of our King James translation of the scriptures, and the result is a mongrel, half-modern glibness and half-ancient simplicity and gravity. The latter is awkward and constrained, the former natural, but grotesque by the contrast. Whenever he found his speech growing too modern, which was about every sentence or two, he ladled in a few such scriptural phrases as exceeding sore, and it came to pass, etc., and made things satisfactory again. And it came to pass was his pet. If he had left that out, his Bible would have been only a pamphlet. Uh, no fair, no fair. Mark Twain's not a good example. He didn't say anything good about the Book of Mormon. This book contains not only the fullness of the everlasting gospel, but many other wonderful things that were not known at the time it was published. Um, has anyone else noticed that Douglas Bryan's voice has kind of started sounding a little bit like a bad Al Gore impersonation? I wonder how that happened. You will find principles of social science and political science more advanced than was taught in the universities of Joseph Smith's day. You will find in this book approximately 180 proper and new names. I think that no author in all history ever created 180 new names. The mighty Shakespeare created about 50 in his lifetime. Joseph Smith didn't take a lifetime. This book, from beginning to end, required slightly more than ten weeks. From the time the first word was written down until the book was complete and perfect and was about 71 days. Well, it's true. There are about 188 proper names that are unique to the Book of Mormon, but there's also 140 names that it shares in common with the Bible. And, you know, I don't know how many of those 188 are actually... Uh, Iha or Oni or Ha or Wuhiha variants of those 149 biblical names, and I'm not going to go through and count them. I also don't really want to take the time to compare the 
Book of Mormon to the Lord of the Rings. But it is interesting to note that uh, because the Lord of the Rings purports to be a translation of the Red Book of Westmark, that the English language version is just a representation of the original Western or possibly the Reformed Western, but translations of the Lord of the Rings into non-English languages have needed to find ways within those languages to imitate the complex interplay between English and Elvish nomenclature in the book. Now, an additional difficulty is with the proper names in Old English, like the names of the Rohirrim or the Old Norse, you know, the external names of the dwarves, because their relation to English within the history of English and of the Germanic languages more generally and respectively is intended to reflect the relation of the purported original names of Westeros. Yeah, yeah, that Lord of the Rings book is so complicated that it must be true. Now, granted, Tolkien took considerably longer to write it than 71 days, but then again, so did Joseph Smith. You would find it a formidable task to even copy it in 71 days, to say nothing of composing it. The very manner in which it was produced is proof enough for me of its authenticity. Yeah, but Douglas, you missed so many points here and misrepresented so many facts that I'm starting to think that you're kind of uh, an idiot. So if I'm to risk my eternal salvation on it, I must be very sure. So I will lay aside these points for a moment. Joseph said he got this book from some gold plates that were shown to him by an angel. Gold, no less. Now, if he had said brass or stone or something, it would have been easier to believe. But solid gold? However, upon investigation, I find that gold was a common commodity in the place where the plates were written. Gold doesn't show up in any way until seven or 800 A.D. That is what the Spanish conquistadors were after in the early days. You perhaps remember the old chieftain who was captured. Standing in a large room, he placed his hand high on the wall and said, I will fill this room up to there with gold if you will release me. It took him only a few days. What the hell is he talking about? Gold is malleable and easily pounded into thin sheets. It's easy to write upon and doesn't corrode. I can't imagine a more perfect material upon which to make a permanent record. Okay, Douglas Bryan, so the limits of your imagination are now equivalent to pure logical evidence. Is that kind of where you go with this? Joseph said he translated these plates by means of a urim and thummim. That is an ancient instrument mentioned in the Bible. It contains... Two clear stones held together in a frame somewhat like our eyeglasses. When he looked through these stones, he could read this ancient language. As a schoolboy would probably express it, that was a big hairy story if I ever was one. (laughs) Big hairy story. (laughs) But do you ever hear a physicist explain the Urim and Thummim? (laughs) No, have you? He says it's not unscientific in any way. Wow, well, golly heck, I will take the unnamed physicist's opinion as uh, kind of my gold standard. Holy cow, this nails it. And this is a great example of pseudo-witness, which is kind of a big red flag for folklore, but anyway. He expects the time will soon come when we can actually make one. 
In fact, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology right now, they are perfecting an electronic instrument that will translate one language into another. Right. You've all got the Urim and Thummim app on your iPhones, right? Joseph said that the language of the plates was Egyptian. Egyptian stuff in America? People hooted at the idea. But since that time, they have found Egyptian artifacts by the thousands, all the way from obsidian stone coins to pyramids as large or larger than those in Egypt. Did you ever see a diagram of the inside of a pyramid? It is the most complex labyrinth of halls and ramps and stairs, etc., that you can imagine. There is a strange thing. The pyramids in America and those in Egypt are built just alike, outside and inside. Joseph Smith couldn't have known a thing like that. Well, first of all, that's not true. They aren't identical. But, you know, even if they were, what, where in the Book of Mormon does it talk about the insides of pyramids being compared to the... Egyptian pyramids. Like, how would Lehi's family, the Nephites, know how to build pyramids? I mean, oh, oh, is is it the Mulekites that did it, or is it the Jaredites that came over before the Egyptians built the pyramids? I mean, like, if you think this through a little bit, you know, okay, I'll, 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 I'll save it to the end. There were 63 gold plates. The original copy of the Book of Mormon contained 588 pages. Some editions with larger print contain more than 750 pages. How could he get 750 pages from 63 plates? Some of our scientists, Sojal for instance, have made a gold plate of the same size and with the cuneiform writing have written 12 pages of the Book of Mormon on one gold plate. If you multiply 63 by 12, the answer will startle you. It's uh, 756, which <gasps> is exactly the same number of those books of Mormon that happen to have like extra large print. How could Joseph Smith have possibly known what font size they would be using? Amazing. I'm startled. Now these points are perfect. I feel sure that they would stand up under the scrutiny of a court of law. But I think I will lay them aside also. I think we can find a better one. In this book, it mentions horses several times. And the time it was published, historians agreed that there were no horses in early America, only those that had been brought over a few years before the Spaniards. But many years after the book was published, they began to find in the tar pits of California and the quarries of the Dakotas Evidence of horses. Nope. Skeletons of horses. No. Nope. Pictures of horses. Nope. Hunters on horses. No. Arms on horses. Uh-uh. Lots of horses. No. Joseph Smith couldn't have known that. And he didn't. In this book, it says that because of a dearth of timber in certain areas, that many things were made of fine cement. Now, at the time this book was published... According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, there was no workable cement in the world anywhere. Why do I just not trust him here? But since that time, they have found 4,500 miles of cement roads. 
They have found aqueducts and temples and, in fact, whole cities made of the finest kind of cement. Joseph Smith couldn't possibly have known that. In this book, it says that at the time Christ was crucified, there was a great upheaval similar to the one in the Holy Land. So great was the disturbance that many whole cities sank beneath the temple. In Joseph Smith's day, you couldn't prove a thing like that. There was no way to know. But when we learned to fly, we could see things in the ocean that could never be seen before. Just as late as our war in Korea, some of our pilots spotted the 16th city lying beneath the sea. Yeah, I I have no idea what he's talking about here. These points are perfect. They are undebatable. They can't be explained away. But I believe I can find a still better one. Now, I just want to give you fair warning here. You know, Douglas Bryan has given some really, really weak examples to support his uh, thesis here, but what he's about to say here is just, like, incredible. I, I mean, I, I couldn't make this stuff up. This book tells a story of some people who landed in America about where Chile is today. They came up across a narrow neck of land and built a mighty civilization. They built roads and cities. They had wars and contentions and all the things that go with the struggles of a civilization. As the people of the Lord traveled farther and farther north, they gradually dwindled out until their last record was buried in a hill called Camorra. At the time this book was published, historians were quite in agreement that the civilization on this continent started in the north where they came across the Bering Strait. But since that time, they have discovered that they did land about where Chile is. They have recently been floating rafts across to show how the people got here. They did come up across a narrow neck of land. They did build a mighty civilization. We have found the roads. We have found the cities. We have found the great battlegrounds. The people did dwindle out as they came farther north, right up to the Hill Camorra. And what do you think we find just beyond the Hill Camorra? Nothing. Could a man guess 2,000 years of detailed history and get it right? One woman in her book said that Joseph Smith started to write a history of the Indians and just by chance wrote the Book of Mormon. Now she may know a lot of things, but the law of chance certainly isn't one of them. Here's the way the law of chance works. If I number ten little discs and stir them up in my pocket and then draw them out one at a time, my chance of getting number one first is one in ten. My chance of getting one and two in their order would be a hundred, etc., until my chance of drawing those ten little discs out in their order would be only one in ten billion. And yet she calmly states that all those thousands of details of history just fell into place by chance. That is the most fantastic, preposterous statement I ever heard. If Joseph Smith could have written a book this size in one second, just one tick of the clock, and if he could have continued to write one every second, day and night, never stopping, 
And if he had begun a thousand years before Christ was born, he still couldn't have written this book by chance. So we have our point. We have found our perfect proof. He couldn't have written this book by chance in countless billions of tries. And he couldn't have written it by knowledge at all, because the knowledge it contains was not yet in the world, except in those gold plates. Yeah, okay, I won't belabor the point any further, but just think about this. This piece of crap letter that I think was supposed to be a talk that was given in sacrament meeting, you know, this ridiculous easily falsifiable piece of poop is being passed around right now by missionaries living right in my hometown who don't even bother to look up what they're handing out to people. Are you kidding me? I mean, you should have seen how proud and eager this kid was when he handed it to me. He really thought that this was just a bulletproof argument. I mean, sure, put ten numbered coins in your pocket and try to pull them all out in the proper numerical sequence. How cool! What an amazing, purely logical conclusion. And, you know, honestly, if Joseph Smith had actually been right about even half of the things that Douglas Bryan mentions in this talk, it would have been pretty impressive, but no, he wasn't, and it's not. And these poor missionary kids, they don't know it, and no one's going to tell them, and they wouldn't listen even if someone did. I gave them a pretty good explanation of why I've come to see the church the way that I do, and at the end of it, They just shook their heads, and they asked me how I felt after all that I had said. And uh, I said that I felt pretty good, and I asked them how they felt. And they said that they felt terrible, because the Spirit wasn't there. Yeah, they weren't getting any warm fuzzies from the way that I explained the deconstruction of my own beliefs, beliefs that they held and cherished. And what I wanted to say to them was, duh, which is exactly how I felt as I was walking through Teotihuacan and looking at the art and the sculptures in the museum and wondering how in the world anyone could really look at these feathered serpent images of Quetzalcoatl and think that they were looking at some bastardized survival of Jesus Christ. You know, because Quetzalcoatl was supposed to be this white god that visited them and then left and told them that he'd come back someday. And Jesus Christ visited them and then he left and he said that they'd come back someday. So Jesus Christ and Quetzalcoatl must be the same person. Because heaven forbid two completely unconnected civilizations create a mythos independent of each other with similar motifs. Because if you have a temple of the sun and a temple of the moon, then you must also have a temple of the stars somewhere, because that's how we understand the degrees of glory. And it's not like unconnected people in different parts of the world can look up at the same sky and see the same bright light in the daytime and the same lesser night in the nighttime and use those as symbols in their completely separate religious traditions. And... If you have a Quetzalcoatl temple with four smaller structures on the right and on the left and in front of it, totaling 12, and then three similar structures in the back, that that has to represent the 12 apostles and the first presidency. Because, you know, 12 and 3 aren't numbers that anyone else would possibly place any completely separate meaning into. And it's not like they were possibly meant to total 15 in the first place, because... 15? (laughs) That just doesn't make any sense. Not to us. And we're the ones with the truth. The truth of all things. 
It's insulting. It's myopic. It's culturally imperialistic. And it's just the way it is when your brain has been shaped and formed through years of primary and Sunday school and seminary as a product of the Mormon belief machine. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Uh, too late. Turns out, I took that red pill a long time ago, in very small, teeny tiny bites. And now, I can't untake it, no matter how badly I might want to. But I don't really want to. I, I couldn't go back and live in that Mormon Matrix world again, where Masonic rites are thought to date all the way back to Adam, and ancient submarines brought the Jaredites and honeybees to America and poisonous serpents separated the people of the north from the lands of the south, and the brother of Jared is named Mahan Rai Moriankamer. I've tried. I'm just too cynical. And with apologies to Douglas Bryan, too purely logical. It's sort of like that Super Tramp song. When I was young, it seemed that life was so Yep, there really are times when all the world's asleep and the questions run so deep for such a simple man. Because for as arrogant and certain as I may sound when I'm mocking the stupidity of guys like the Nephite Explorer and Brother Douglas Bryan Esquire, the truth is I'm really only taking aim and shooting down those shadows of my old self. Because I don't really know much of anything for certain anymore. Except maybe that I don't know much of anything for certain. And that I never, ever want to be that myopic and culturally imperialistic ever again. But looking back, I can see that that splinter was there in my mind, driving me mad, even as a missionary. 
Because there was that one P-Day back in July 1992 where a few of us started this silly little movie that we never actually finished. I want to tell a story. No, not tonight, Christopher. Your mom said no. But I want to tell a story, Dad. It's all right, Mr. Crispins. We'd love to hear a story. Okay. I'm going to tell you two about my favorite superhero, but you have to guess who it is. Will you give us a hint? His name starts with an N. Oh, I see. It must be Nephi. Nephi? Nephi's dumb. Who is it? It was Anna Anna Jones. Now, I based that on a real experience I had before my mission with the five-year-old kid who did that very thing. I just took it a step further and turned it into a missionary P-Day movie, Inna Anna Jones and the Quest for the Gold Plates. We're missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is called the Book of Mormon. This book was translated from some golden plates. (laughs) I'm an archaeologist. By the way, I'm Dr. Jones. Now, what was this that you were saying about... So, move over, Brian Fisher. You weren't the first in Anna Jones of Book of Mormon geography. Because golden plates, man. Golden plates. So, you see, even as a missionary, some splinter inside of my mind knew, even then, how silly this all really was. Which is probably why I took the path that I took and developed my interest in all those weird, funny stories I heard in my mission, turning that into a formal study of Mormon folklore and pursuing that into graduate school and learning to think more clearly and critically and how to search for actual evidence and let that shape me rather than me shaping it. And yeah, that small splinter is a big reason why I am who I am today. And now you know the rest of the story. So I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, 2014 has been a pretty good year for us so far. You know, since January, since even our last listener feedback episode, our weekly downloads have almost tripled. A lot of that comes from the Tom Phillips episodes, and I think a lot of it is that we've just been averaging about two releases a week. Hopefully we can keep up that pace, because it's fun, and we certainly have more listeners sending in their essays and contributing content than we ever have before. Uh, we've got a few of those that we're working on, and you know we've got Brother Jake working on more projects with us, and it just keeps getting more and more fun. So if you like what we're doing, do me a favor. Log into iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write us up a little review. You know, right now we have 64 ratings and 41 reviews. In fact, a new one just came in yesterday. This one is from Matthew George, and he says, Very well done. Highly recommended. If you are afraid of the truth and reality, stay away. If you find that all truth is useful, you found a good podcast. You will enjoy the quorum. Well, thank you, Matthew George. You know, I shy away a little bit from calling what we do truth and reality because you know i think i've said this before we really don't take ourselves that seriously we know that we get things wrong Uh, we're just trying to have fun but i'm i'm glad you think this so thank you very much and as always we encourage you to comment on our website infantsonthrones.com or like us on our facebook page and by all means share us with your friends because sharing is caring or something like that thanks again for listening anyone for the closing prayer
All right, so there you have it. Myopia and cultural imperialism from my limited way of viewing the world to yours. Now, six and a half years later, how are we different, Quad, from what we were doing back then? Well, your editing got a lot better. That's for sure. I, I did smooth a few things out here, but yeah. And I think that today you wouldn't be so quick to portray Ryan the Nephite Explorer, the missionaries that you met in Indiana, and that Douglas Bryan guy as such idiotic morons. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I hope that's true. You know that it is. Because you actually care about them as people, don't you? Well, I, I don't know them personally. No, but you know that they are just like you. They were born innocent into this world, just like you were. They wanted to love and to be loved, just like you. And they were misguided by well-meaning parents and adults through their entire lives, just like you. You have decided that you want to move away from that misguided part of yourself that made you think that you were better than other people because you had the truth and they had fictions. In order to do that, you took a very courageous step. You became willing to level the playing field and recognize your own core assumptions as fictions as well. Yeah, you're right, I did. You want to be a more loving and accepting person than the guy who was ridiculing the people that you ridiculed in this episode six and a half years ago. Yeah, that's true, I do. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? That maybe I could insert the preface and introduction to Bathing with God as an extended Easter egg right here? Exactly. Yeah, I am. Thanks, Quad. So, here is episode one of my new podcast, Bathing with God, where I'm releasing a chapter of my book every week, along with other episodes that answer listener questions. Think of it as a sort of spin-off to Infants on Thrones. And you're going to hear episode one, right? now. Welcome to Bathing with God, the free audiobook podcast from my imagination to yours. I'm Glenn Ostland, and if you like what you hear and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And now I give you Bathing with God. Bathing with God. Rejecting? Nope. Struggling against? Still no. Playfully engaging? That's it. The Divinity All Around Us by Glenn Ostland. Preface When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. A miracle. It was beautiful, magical. But then they sent me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, intellectual, cynical, there are times when all the world's asleep. The questions run too deep for such a simple man. Won't you please, please tell me what we've learned. I know it sounds absurd. Please tell me who I am. The Logical Song, Supertramp The second most difficult thing I ever did in my life was intentionally snuffing out my belief in God. He didn't even struggle as I held his head beneath that pillow. The single most difficult thing I did was when I unexpectedly breathed life back into him again. It took nearly forever just to find his lips. Welcome to the preface for Bathing with God. I am the author, Glenn Ostland, and I am a walking, talking paradox. I imagine that you are too. 
I am both responsible and irresponsible, kind and cruel, intelligent and ignorant, lazy and highly productive, humble and arrogant, considerate of others and incredibly self-centered. I have been both a missionary for my church and an outspoken, mocking, ridiculing, podcasting atheist. I've been a husband and an ex-husband, a father, a son, a teacher, a student, a businessman, unemployed, a man of integrity, and a cheater. I've been both a privileged cultural insider and a foreign minority outsider, a leader and a follower, full of hope and joy, full of darkness and despair, a passionate believer, and an even more passionate skeptic. The idea of reincarnation both fascinates and confuses me. But I don't have to die and be reborn to know what it's like to live multiple lives. I've lived multiple lives in this lifetime already. And once again, I imagine that you have too. We live in a world full of paradox, don't we? So much variety. So much diversity. So many contradictions. I remember hearing a very sincere prayer once at church. A man, who I liked very much, stood up and said, Dear Father in Heaven, we are so humbled to be the most chosen of thy people. Wait, what? Is it really humble to consider yourself more chosen than other people? That isn't very loving. Dang, I hate that. Wait, what? I feel hatred when someone I like expresses their sincere feelings of gratitude to their creator? That isn't very loving either. Dang it, I want to be loving. That's right. I want to be loving. I have always wanted to be loving. Through all of these different paradoxical lives, through all of the various hats and masks that I have worn, I've come to recognize that it isn't very loving to be constantly judging other people, to constantly find them falling short of some ideal of perfection, to constantly focus on perceived failures and flaws. It isn't very loving to be constantly judging others or myself. How can I stop judging? How can I accept the obvious fact that life is full of messy paradox, which is actually quite perfect and beautiful exactly the way it is, exactly the way that God or nature or the universe has made it? The idea of God both fascinates and confuses me. So much of what I've learned about God over the years has sounded far-fetched, made up, fictional. I closed myself off to the possibility of God for a very long time. I thought it was stupid to believe in God, and whether I was willing to admit it or not, that meant that I thought people who believed in God were stupid too. Hang on, I'm doing it again, aren't I? It isn't very loving to be constantly judging other people. Dang it, I want to be loving. Can I rewire my brain to be less judgmental? Can I get rid of judgment altogether? Would God help me do this if I asked him? Do I even believe in a God that would help me do this if I asked him? What would something like that even look like? Bathing with God is a series of conversations I had with a voice that came to me when I was soaking in a bathtub. That voice was not audible. It was imagined. That voice was not foreign to me. It was familiar. That voice became my friend. It had always been my friend and it responded when I asked it to. It answered the call to help me become more accepting and less judgmental 
of both myself and others. In this book, you as the reader have been given a ringside seat to my inner paradox, my consistencies and inconsistencies, my attempts to use my own imagination to look at the world through the eyes of an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. A God that does not strike down thieves before they steal. A God that does not strike down abusers before they abuse. A God that seems to love, nourish, and sustain all people, allowing everyone to float in their own particular sea of paradox. A God that both fascinates and confuses me. A God that has been teaching me, through my own imagination, how to be a more loving, accepting, joyful human being. And you know what? I think it's working, because I can say this with all honesty. I do not know who you are or where you come from, dear listener. I do not know what you have done, what you will do, or any of the specific paradoxes that define who you are. But I know for a fact that I love you. I know that any judgment I might ever put on you or on anyone else is only a projection of those parts of myself that are still in search of acceptance and love. In other words, if I judge you, it's not you, it's me. Those are the parts of myself that still focus on failure and have not yet learned how to let go of fear, that have not yet come to fully understand what it truly means to be constantly, inescapably, bathing with God. So, welcome to my mind. Welcome to my heart. I wrote this book for me. I'm sharing it with you. It is meant to be enjoyed, so I hope that you enjoy it. Glenn Osland, August 2020. P.S. My full name is Dow Glenn Osland II. That means that my initials are D-G-O, which can be arranged to spell either God or Dog. So if you decide to call this book Bathing with Dog, I will completely understand, and I promise not to judge you for it. Introduction Atheism There is no God, I often say. How could there be? There is no way. There is no Christ. He gave no gift. His so-called teachings, ancient myth. And while I'm on the subject, please, I have no arms, no legs, no knees. There is no God, no heavenly place. It's as plain as the nose that's not on my face. There is no God. How could there be? There is no God. There is no me. Glenn Ostland. Why did you start with that poem? What? Who are you? You know exactly who I am, and we'll get to that more later. But this is the introduction to a book called Bathing with God. So why did you start with a poem called Atheism? Because I like it. I like it too. I'm the one who wrote it, you know. No, you didn't. I did. When I was a 15-year-old sophomore in high school, as a way to send a message to my atheist English teacher. What message were you trying to send? That a denial of God was the same thing as a denial of self. Have you always felt that way? No, but I sure did back then. You turned in another poem as part of that assignment. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. Why didn't you choose that one for this book? Because it was about a zit. Yeah, I really liked that one, too. Let's hear it. Okay, here you go. Life as a zit. 
Where would I be if I were a zit? Would I be on your face or on where you sit? Would I be in your nostril, inside of your ear, in your mouth, on your tongue? Just look in the mirror. I could grow on your chin with a head white as snow, and where you don't wash is where I will grow. Oh, the fun it would be. There's no way that I'd stop. That is, till you'd find me and give me a pop. Nice. And what message were you trying to send with that one? That I thought the assignment was stupid. That I could write poems standing on my head. And that poems didn't have to be about lofty, beautiful ideas. But why do you care? Who are you, anyway? We'll get to that soon enough. For now, why not tell these beautiful people what they're in for with this book? What people? The people who are either reading or listening to these words right now. There are no people reading or listening to these words right now. Not your right now. They're right now. In your right now, you are writing the words that come from somewhere deep within you, and you're currently, all alone, soaking in a bathtub, writing this on your phone with your right thumb. But trust me, eventually there will be people paying attention to this, and in their right now, they're wondering what they're getting themselves into, and whether this is the kind of thing they'll want to spend any time on. So, let them know what they're in for. Okay. I was raised to believe in God. I believed for a long time. I even spent two years in Japan going door-to-door -door as a missionary for my church, trying to convert people to believe in God, or at least the version of God that I believed in at the time. But then something happened, right? Yeah, I went to graduate school. And what happened in graduate school? I stopped believing in God. Why? Because I was studying folklore and mythology. And I realized that all the stories in the Bible are just stories. Legends, myths, folk tales. They're fictions, not actual history, which is what I believed when I was a kid. There was no real Noah who put all those animals on a boat. No actual Adam and Eve with their talking snake. No 6,000-year-old Earth. Just a bunch of stories that, true, have helped a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But they've hurt people in a lot of different ways, too. So I stopped believing that any of it was real. And then what happened? I eventually realized that all stories have a very real impact on people, whether the stories are true or not. Which means that fictions always have some element of truth to them, even if that truth is nothing more than what we learn about ourselves when describing what we see, like in a Rorschach inkblot. I then spent a lot of time asking myself a lot of deep questions. Eventually, I realized that most of them simply cannot be answered. At that point, since I could find no definitive evidence either way, it seemed foolish and almost hypocritical for me to be so certain that there was no God. That shift in perspective fundamentally changed the way I see myself and everything else around me, and those changes made me want to write this book. I remember. I was there. So, what kinds of deep questions did you ask? Well, there were a lot of them, like, who or what am I? And why am I here? Do I really have more atoms in my body than there are stars in the sky? Is each atom a tiny bundle of energy that was made in the stars? Am I actually a being of energy? What is the relationship between energy and matter? Which religion is right? Are any of them right? What does it even mean for a religion to be right? Are religion and science really enemies? Is there any way to bring them closer together, even if it's just within my own mind? What is truth? What is fiction? Can truths be fictions? Can fictions be truths? 
How much do we really know compared to how much we really don't? What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of perception? Is there a difference between the way I perceive reality and the reality that I cannot perceive? How has evolution determined the way I perceive reality? Aside from the five physical senses, do I have any other senses that influence my perception of reality? A sense of equilibrium, a sense of time and place, a sense of humor, a sense of self? What role does imagination play in turning these senses into meaningful stories about the world around us? What is an ego or a personality? What is a soul? Is there a soul? Did we exist somehow in any form before we were born? Will we exist somehow in any form after we die? What role does evolution play in the development of my personality? Is there a similar type of evolution for a soul? How was all of this actually made? If atoms create molecules, and molecules create cells, and cells create the organs and tissues that make us up, what is the intelligence that instructs and directs each self-organizing bit of subatomic energy on how to become any one of those atoms in the first place? Is there some kind of energetic DNA behind our DNA? Is God just a story that parents have told their children for years and years and years? Or is there more to it than that? If so, is he a he? Or is she a she? Or does gender even mean anything to a divine creator of everything? What if God is nature? What if God is love? What if God is the subatomic energy that creates every atom, molecule, and cell in every living and non-living thing? What is the subatomic energy in the quantum realm? Is it really a single energy field that we're all connected to and created from? Is it intelligent? Is it conscious? Is it alive? Is it aware of all of the things it creates? Are any two of its creations identically the same? What if our intrinsic value in this universe is that I'm the only version of me that ever will be, and that you are the only version of you that ever will be, and that we are each beautifully different ways that subatomic energy creates new and infinitely expanding experiences for itself to experience? What if our eyes had evolved to be able to see the subatomic energy that is constantly creating and maintaining everything around us? Would it appear to us as a fluid, like water? Would it feel like we were constantly immersed in it? Like we were constantly bathing in it? What would it be like if I could communicate with this subatomic energy? What would I ask? What would it say? And how might the answers to any of these out there questions help me, or anyone else for that matter, in any practical way in my everyday life? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Tell me about it. That's why I wrote this book. Did you get any answers? I got all the answers. Really? Arrogant much? Well, I got answers that have satisfied me, at least, for now. Other people will, of course, see things differently, because we're all looking at the world through very different filters based on our unique individual experiences, which is exactly the way it's supposed to be. That was actually one of my answers. Nice. And how exactly did you get all these answers? Keep reading and you'll find out. Cool. I will. And hey, look at what you did. I'd say this is a pretty good introduction now. People who are interested in exploring these kinds of questions will want to read on, and people who aren't can focus on something more interesting to them. Nicely done. There's only one more thing that you should tell them. What's that? Make sure they know why you are doing this. What do you hope to get out of writing this book? I don't really know. Why do you think I'm writing it? 
for the same reason that you built sandcastles when you were a kid? Because it's fun. Because you're surrounded by all of this sand to play in. All of these words, thoughts, and ideas. All of these neurological rhythms. You like putting things together to see how it feels to play with them. Well, that's it. You never built any of those sand castles as places to actually live in, did you? And you certainly never built any of them to last. When you finish this book, you will move on to another one. I guess that's right. But why are you telling me this? So that your readers will know that you're not preaching big capital T truths at them. That you're not attached to any of these ideas. That you're playing with these concepts and you're inviting your readers to play along with you. And that you certainly do not intend for any of this to be taken too seriously. Although you offer up every word with heartfelt respect and sincerity. Is that supposed to be a nice way of saying that none of what I'm writing here is true? Not exactly. There are certainly truths to be found in what you've written, but the greatest of those truths will be the unique responses that each reader will bring to what you're sharing with them, what it truly makes them think and how it truly makes them feel, regardless of what those thoughts or feelings might be. Now go ahead and wrap this up so we can get to the meat of this already. Thank you. I think I will. Bathing with God is the book that I co-wrote with my imagination when I took the time to relax in a nice warm bath and explore possible answers to many of my favorite questions. Those answers came to me from somewhere deep within. As a result, some may consider this to be insightful, channeled writing. And it is. Others may consider this a work of fiction. And it is. As you will see in the pages that follow, I do not consider fiction and insightful channeled writing to be mutually exclusive ideas, because they aren't. And of course, neither does the massive sea of energy that is the creator of everything that exists. Every quark, every electron, every atom, every bioelectrochemical thought in our brains, there's nothing that is not an extension of this energy. Everything is a unique fraction of that whole. No unique fraction is anywhere close to the complete whole and no fraction can perceive anything beyond the limits of its fractional ability to perceive, although perceptions can be changed, which will most likely be experienced by every reader of this book. It will most definitely change you. The question is, how? That answer is up to you. Don't worry. The energy that whispered these words into this book is not malicious. And it is certainly not a stranger. You've met her many times before. You're just as much a part of her as I am, and she expresses herself through you just as much as she expresses herself through me. All of these expressions are, of course, unique to our own biological makeup, environmental influences, cultural heritage, individual life choices, and many other variables. We are each a one-of-a-kind work of art, created and sustained by this energy. We are each a unique fingerprint on the universe a complicated and ever-evolving aperture through which shines the mysterious energy from deep within each of the billions of atoms that make up our bodies. This energy shines through each of us in a dazzling variety of ways, and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to the dazzling version that is presently shining through me. It is the source of life. It is the source of consciousness. It is what people call God. And all of us are constantly bathing in it. So come on in. The water is absolutely fine. Thank you for listening to Bathing with God. If you like what you just heard and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. 
And if you really, really like what you just heard, share it with someone you love and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to the Bathing with God YouTube channel. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can email me, Glenn Osland, at bathingwithgod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And probably so would Quad. Oh yeah, bring it. Thanks again for listening to Bathing Bathing with with God. God.